now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. What a great day it is. Yet another Republican running for president of the United States. And no, it's not someone who is irrelevant. Happens to be the first Latino running for president on either side of the political divide. And somebody who uh, ran for re-election as mayor of a Miami and uh, got 79% of the vote in an area that has been trending Democratic. Uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is going to be giving a big speech tonight. He has taken out the papers for his campaign. What does it mean uh, for the course of the battle for the Republican nomination? Probably not much, but uh, there has been talk of uh, people talking about putting uh, Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate for which he would be eligible. There's one big problem with this candidacy. We will get to that on the Michael Medved Show. Uh, there is also big news about the congressional baseball game. Remember, there was actually a shooting uh, ahead of the uh, congressional baseball game where Steve Scalise, the deputy, uh, the actually the Republican leader on the floor of the House, he's second only to Kevin McCarthy, he was seriously injured, but he was part of the baseball game last night. And the results, well, the results were very encouraging for one side of the political divide. Uh, we will also be talking with Andy McCarthy, the former prosecutor and writer on legal matters for National Review, about how this uh, trial of President Trump is going to shape up and what are some of the worst arguments on both sides of the issue regarding President uh, uh, Trump and uh, what has been charged against him. President Biden, meanwhile, is uh, planning a, an amazing railroad as a, a great example of America's can-do spirit. It would be one of the first great railroads in the world over water. We will talk about that on the Michael Medved Show. And uh, we'll also be speaking to Michael Oren, former member of parliament and uh, Israeli ambassador to the United States, about national rejuvenation. He's talking about national rejuvenation, making a nation young again for the state of Israel, which is only 75 years old. What about our almost 250-year nation? How should that be rejuvenated? We'll be talking about that with Michael Oren. Okay, first up, however, we have a Golden Turkey Award, and this is one that is so richly deserved. Uh, I, I, I want to lead with it and everybody to focus on it and what it means. Golden Turkey, please. <laughs> Bigger than the Academy Awards. First and foremost, I'd like to thank God. Groovier than the Grammys. I would like to thank my wonderful agent. And more powerful than the People's Choice. I would like to share this with every single senator. Now, it's time for another Golden Turkey Award nomination. Thank you so much! Okay, this Golden Turkey Award goes to a, a judge, a U.S. District Court judge, 
uh, named Marsha Peckman, who has just issued an order that is going to impact everybody's life if you live in the Seattle area. The uh, headline, Judge Bars Graffiti Arrests, Upending City Vandalism Laws. Uh, the Seattle police have been barred, at least temporarily, from making graffiti-related arrests after a federal judge issued an injunction on the city's uh, contested property damage law, and uh, this uh, has occurred this week. Um, why is she making it against the law for people to bust people for... Uh, well, actually, what the, this is over is they had uh, written on a wall in various places downtown, F the police, but they spelled out the actual word. Uh, we are now told there is a First Amendment right to do this. As Jeremy said when he was first reading this bulletin coming down, it sounds like the onion, that you have a First Amendment right to put graffiti on someone's property or on a public wall. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Marsha Peckman, uh, her order prohibits arrest under the city's existing law, which four plaintiffs claim uh, violated their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, among other claims by being both vague and overbroad. The case dates back to January 2021, when the plaintiffs, Derek Tucson, Robin Snyder, Monsari Del Castro, and Eric uh, Moya Delgado, a hyphenated name, how about that, uh, protested Seattle police by writing statements uh, that said, F the police, uh, and again and again and again. And they the other pictures, they did it all over the place. Uh, they did that in charcoal and chalk on a temporary concrete wall outside Seattle's East Precinct. That was the one that was taken over during the Chaz uh, riot or the Chaz takeover, as you'll remember. Uh, the law is written in a way that maybe if the police were reasonable and could be trusted to exercise their discretion in a just way, it wouldn't have ever become a problem, said uh, a lawyer named Brendan Pence, or Braden Pence, no relation to the vice president. But the fact is that the police can't be trusted. The city code in question says someone who intentionally damages the property of another or writes, paints, or draws any inscription, figure, or mark of any type on any public or private building or other structure or any real or personal property owned by any other person is guilty of property destruction. Well, they are, aren't they? Which is typically referred to the city attorney to prosecute if the value of the damage is less than $1,000. Uh, Peckman wrote Tuesday that the city's current statute could be used for censorship. Uh, okay, the idea being that if you are saying something political, then you have a right to put graffiti on my property. It's not a crime. It's an expression of free speech. Uh, she said, uh, noting there is allegedly a policy not to arrest children drawing rainbows on the sidewalk, but the statue would allow for that uh, if uh, the arrest of those who might inscribe something that irks an individual officer. Okay, this idea that an individual officer might uh, actually 
arrest someone because he was irked by the message, isn't it enough to say that what the crime is is not what you are saying or the content of what you're saying? It's basically property destruction. This is completely nutty. In the uh, ruling, Judge Peckman wrote, the criminalization of free speech significantly harms the public interest in far greater measure than the public might benefit from criminalizing property damage. Oh, what? The, the public good is going to be somehow damaged by the fact that you are trying to keep... I'll tell you where it bothers me most. It's, it's on the Mercer Street. When you get off of the I-5 and you go through the tunnel, and the tunnel has some... Uh, years and years ago, they put up a sort of a yellow tile there, which is now literally covered with graffiti. You can't even see the tile underneath. And yes, that damages the way people feel about going downtown. It damages Seattle as a tourist city, which is an important thing. We were talking about how San Francisco has basically collapsed tourism there because nobody wants to go anymore. And it's the same reason. And there's a real danger that uh, in this same district, the uh, Ninth Circuit, uh, that some other judge will extend this uh, around the country. The idea that, that basically trying to stop people from doing graffiti is a violation of free speech. Unbelievable. Yeah, and shameful. And a Golden Turkey Award winner. We'll be talking to Andy McCarthy, former prosecutor, about the prosecution of President Trump, who also ought to be prosecuted, who isn't being charged. Show uh, talking about uh, the controversy stirred up over the fact that um, there's now going to be a no ability to arrest people uh, or to stop them from uh, putting uh, graffiti, however you want to call it, graffiti or art that is uninvited, uh, and putting that all over private property and public property and all over the city of Seattle. And I know that a lot of people who drive to work all the time, you can kind of see it. There are certain corners, uh, like there's one right underneath the hospital where they sort of, uh, every couple of weeks, they try to paint over the graffiti to try to discourage more of it. But it keeps coming and coming and coming, and you wouldn't think there was any space left uh, without people using scaffolding or being... Uh, sort of suspended from helicopters. Or I don't know how you, how you actually put it up this way. Uh, the police department was asked about this, and they were asked if they were going to be appealing in any way or challenging the injunction, which has now been granted, uh, stopping them from arresting anyone for uh, this kind of property destruction. And uh, the police said that we understand and share the concerns that are being relayed to us by our community, businesses, and f residents alike. The release reads, 
we now, we know, as evidenced by the thousands of calls for service we receive each year reporting acts of vandalism and other forms of property damage, that property damage is, in fact, a crime that is of significance to community members. A spokesman for Mayor Harrell, who has been aggressively trying to mitigate permanent graffiti in Seattle since before his election in 2021, notice how they make a distinction between permanent and temporary. Uh, I mean, the temporary graffiti is up there and it's permanent until somebody comes along and paints over it or cleans it up, which is very difficult to do. The uh, Mayor Harrell noted that the underlying case occurred before he took office and said that the mayor would continue to find ways to alleviate graffiti and graffiti-related arrests. Okay, how is it you alleviate, alleviate graffiti without those arrests? What do you do if, if you don't actually try to enforce the law to stop this? Mayor Harrell remains committed to swift and sustainable action to prevent and remove graffiti and property damage. Communications Director Jamie Housen uh, wrote yesterday, we will continue to activate our neighborhoods with positive community-led art and abate actively harmful and malicious tagging, including hate speech. Housen said, great, the hate speech, yes, is particularly hateful, but it's all hateful. I mean, even if they put uh, uh, put up on the wall, let a thousand flowers bloom. Frankly, I, I think it would even be hateful if they put up go Seahawks. You know, I mean, there, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter really as much what it says. What it matters is going to property that you don't own and defacing it. And most of the graffiti is is has no artistic value. It's 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 ugly and it's pointless and it's destructive. And and what it does is it makes the entire city less viable. Now listen to this. Um, there's an ABC report on the San Francisco nightmare that is going on right now. And uh, the ABC report, this is clip 14, Jeremy, starts off by talking about the impact on business. Listen. This morning, a San Francisco mall at the epicenter of a growing real estate dead zone in a major American city. Battling rising crime, soaring real estate prices, and a homelessness crisis, the city dealt its latest blow this week. Westfield, which owns the city's largest mall, stopped paying its half-billion-dollar mortgage and is surrendering the property to lenders. The company setting dramatically decreased occupancy down to approximately 55%, including already announced closures of tenants such as Nordstrom, Banana Republic, and others. Also giving up on downtown, hundreds of other companies, including Gap and Whole Foods. Union Square used to be the beating heart of San Francisco, but a recent survey found that since 2019, nearly 50% of all the stores here have left. Now it's empty storefront after empty storefront after empty storefront. The last time I was here was 2019. So it was great back then. Now I was like, I'm scared. I was thinking to switch my hotel. That's unbelievable. I've stayed at hotels on Union Square. And it used to be a beautiful part of one of America's most beautiful cities. 
as San Francisco used to be. The uh, ABC reporter then spoke with uh, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, who, of course, tried to put a positive spin on uh, all of the misery and the sufferings and the destruction. Uh, this is 14B. In the first quarter of the year, the city saw a 16% rise in robberies and a 41% spike in fentanyl deaths over the same period in 2022. You're seeing it all over right now. Companies are leaving the city. Is San Francisco dangerous? Well, here's the thing. San Francisco is a major city, and it has challenges. But let's back up a little bit. You are talking about people who are leaving the city, but not the people who are staying, expanding, coming to San Francisco. But it's not just San Francisco. Other West Coast cities, including Portland, Seattle, and Los Angeles, also suffering from a similar trend of downtown decay. The mayor noting that several metrics of crime are actually flat or down, but it is worth mentioning that we are not at Union Square or the Westfield Mall this morning because we have been advised it is simply too dangerous to be there at this hour. Okay, this is a national network film crew, ABC, uh, that is told it's, it's too dangerous to go down to, to Union Square. I, I mean... This is what we're heading for. And, and of course, like Seattle, San Francisco is an enormously expensive city. The real estate values have been uh, very high. In fact, that's been blamed for the homelessness crisis, where a part of the blame for the homelessness crisis in San Francisco, it's the same as Seattle. Uh, apparently, among the homeless community, they talk about free Seattle. Uh, because you can get all kinds of stuff for free. And the entire notion that you have uh, official statements like this court decision uh, where they talk about uh, defending your right to graffiti, to trash public property, to trash the city in which you live, to trash other people's private property. You have the right to do that without being arrested because heaven forbid it might discourage your freedom of speech. And her statement that there was more to fear from curtailing freedom of speech by getting rid of graffiti uh, that, than it is to actually arrest people for doing that vandalism. How outrageous. And how outrageous is the ongoing focus and fascination on the Trump trial coming up. We'll talk about that with uh, prosecutor, veteran prosecutor Andy McCarthy on the Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, to put this conversation I'm about to have with Andy McCarthy into context, Andy is a senior fellow at National Review Institute. He's a very distinguished assistant U.S. attorney and prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, helped to put some of uh, the world's worst terrorists, literally, into jail. Uh, he's also a contributing editor to National Review, and one of the most patriotic and intelligent conservatives out there. Uh, Andy, uh, just to give some context here, there was a flat-out statement by President Trump uh, when he spoke the night before his birthday, uh, that would be Tuesday night, at uh, Bedminster, New Jersey, his golf club there where he's staying. 
And he said, today we witnessed the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the nation's history. And of course, he went on to decry uh, the witch hunt, the uh, weaponization of the Justice Department, the unfair prosecution of an innocent man. As, as somebody who's been in the criminal justice system, you don't necessarily think this is the best strategy for President Trump. No, Michael, and, and thank you so much for the kind words. I, I appreciate that more than you know. Uh, but no, well, I don't, I don't think what he's hardwired to do is in any way a good legal strategy. But at the same time, you know, he's had one of these lives where, you know, he was just, as you mentioned, it was his birthday. He just marked his 77th birthday. And he likes to live on the razor's edge, and it's worked out for him you know, pretty well. Um, so I think part of his issue is that, like, nobody can nobody can tell him anything because he just always thinks he knows better or he always at least knows what he wants to hear and goes with whatever piece of advice he wants to hear. But I also think that the um, the thing that you mentioned about how he thought this was the, you know, the worst, most evil thing that ever happened in the history of the nation – this goes to a big part of his problem in terms of his psychological makeup. What, I, what I've gotten asked uh, a million times, and anybody who I guess has been in litigation would be asked this, is why did he do this? You know, what, what's the motive? What would, what would cause this to happen? Yeah, well, what, what did he gain? What's, what's, the, what's to be gained for the country or for himself? Well, but I don't – see, the thing is I, I think – there's something profound in uh, to be to be uh, mined out of what he said about how this was the worst thing. Because the thing is, he can't. He he has conflated himself with the nation, and he repeatedly did that throughout his presidency. That where he could not distinguish, you know, the 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 government and the office of the presidency from the person of Trump. In almost a, uh, a monarchical uh, kind of uh, frame of mind, and I really think that goes to the main question here of why he did what he did. And I think it's because he has not come to terms. I mean, in some ways he knows this psychologically, but really deep down he has not come to terms with the fact that he's not president anymore. He's never accepted that he was defeated. He insists on, you know, to this day, he insists on everybody has to call him Mr. President. And, you know, all of his uh, all the people around him refer to him as the president as if he were still the president. And I think a lot of this had to do with people who, when he was president, you know, he would say jump and they had to say how high. Uh, and now they're telling him what to do and he doesn't like it. Um, and, you know, somebody who knows him and um uh, has a, a little more insight into him personally than I do. When I ask, you know, why did he do this? Uh, why, why didn't he just give them their stuff back? And the answer was because they wanted it. Um, and I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, this goes uh, together, it seems to me, to something that uh, Chris Christie had had said, and he he's known the president for a long time as well, and uh, saying that, 
that he truly in deep deep in his heart and soul he believes he won the election in 2020 and uh, all of these papers and these boxes and the ability to hold them and display them and have them around him surround the chandeliers and the bathrooms with boxes of top secret papers all of that made him feel presidential it it was a sense that there was some continuity here that there was only this temporary inconvenient interruption where he was forced to step away from the white house and the presidency but he would bring these papers back with him eventually uh to the white house for the second coming and uh, yeah, I, uh your reaction I, yeah i think there's a lot to be said for that but i also think that um Aside from the attendments of the presidency, which I think Christie is right about, that's meaningful to, to, to Trump. But I also think at a kind of a gut level, somebody who's been in the position he was in uh, up until uh, January 20th of, uh, of 2021, you know, you're, you're in that position. And now you're the psychological makeup of Trump and you're being told what to do by a lawyer from the National Archives and Records Administration. <laughs> you know? And I just don't think he can, I don't think he's ever come to, you know, you're being told what to do, not even by the Attorney General. They sent like some section head from the Justice Department to tell him, hey pal, you gotta turn over these documents, you know? Not the head of the FBI, they sent like three line agents to say, you know, you guys gotta turn over these documents. I don't think he's, I don't think he's, um, psychologically on board with the idea that the, that he's in a different status now. How do you think he would react to a pardon? There's a, a lot of discussion about pardoning Trump and Mark Thiessen, who's a very thoughtful conservative, and Danielle Pletka have a joint right. piece they put in the Washington Post. And they're saying it's the way to heal the country right now, the only way would be for Biden to grant a uh, Gerald Ford Nixon style complete pardon to Trump for anything that he's done to violate federal law. It wouldn't cover things in on the state level. But do you think that's a positive yeah, idea for the country? Yeah. So I, I think very highly of Mark and Danny as, as you do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's typical of them that it's thoughtful. My my. I think ultimately they may end up being right. Here's my problem with it. You know, the Nixon, the Ford Nixon thing, uh, I think that is fondly remembered, even though I remember at the time, I was just a kid at the time, but I was old enough to understand that there was a lot of, um, the, Ford took a lot of grief from that. And there was a lot of view that in 76, he may have lost the election over it, but it was definitely the right thing to do for the country. But it was in the context where, Nixon had resigned and apologized. So, you know, there was at least some sense that there had been some accountability. Whereas, I, you know, when I've been asked, what do you think of this proposal by Vivek Ramaswamy that, uh, you know, they should all just guarantee that they're going to pardon him? My first, if I were asked that and I were a presidential candidate, my first question would be, has President Trump asked for a pardon? Um, because generally speaking, if you pardon somebody, that's like in, in, people who are actually innocent don't want a pardon. They want to. They want their innocence established. So generally, we don't we don't entertain pardons unless people ask. Now that you have historical examples like uh, 
you know, Lincoln pardoning, pardoning Confederate soldiers and, and Carter pardoning, uh, you know, draft evaders during the Vietnam War. So it's not like it never happens. But I think in this instance, I, I don't think I would give Trump a, a, jet, a get out of jail free card unless he apologized. And what do you think the chances of that are? Well, we're talking about an extraordinary remedy, right? Yeah. And the the Donald Trump we know, it would you would say the chances were close to zero. But yeah, we're talking about I'm, a seventy-six year old man who could be looking at a lot of time in prison. Seventy-seven years old uh, as of Tuesday. We will be right back uh, with the one and only Andrew McCarthy. And on the Michael Medved Show, a pleasure speaking to Andrew McCarthy, somebody who's actually worked for the uh, dreaded Justice Department and done heroic work for the Justice Department, making us all safer from uh, some uh, domestic-based Islamo-Nazi terrorists who uh, killed 3,000 Americans back in uh, 2001, you may remember. Uh, Andy is uh, a uh, contributing editor to National Review where you can read his extremely provocative positions on on all of the controversies, legal-based controversies that we face as a country right now. And uh, we were talking off the air and it was interesting because of, about what's going to happen with this trial. You're not sure that uh, this will ever actually go to trial. And uh, there was this piece today uh, out today about three different ways that uh, Trump can avoid any consequences for any of these controversies. And they have to do with that idea that all you need to get a, an acquittal or, or at least a hung jury, a, a mistrial, is uh, persuade one juror that uh, this has not been proved uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, do you think that uh, his defense team is uh, going to be properly focused on that goal? Well, they will, but, you know, there's down here on planet Earth, um, that generally only works when you have a one or two count indictment. It's highly unusual to get one juror who won't, you know, out of 12 uh, who won't uh, convict um, when you have a 37 count indictment. I mean, the more common outcome is that there's some horse trading about about counts than that, you know, uh, one person just won't deliberate over 37 charges. So we'll see. We'll see how that all goes. I, I just. I, I doubt it gets to trial, Michael, because, and I, I, I must say, I think I was wrong about this. I really thought that uh, he w- that Smith was going to make this essentially an obstruction trial, and then I, I even thought that he might indict it lean and mean and just go with the obstruction cast and keep the classified information stuff to the side. I thought the reason for that is it's very hard to get a classified information case to trial quickly. Um, and secondly, indicting the classified information counts spotlights Biden's possession of classified information. So politically, it's, it doesn't seem to me to work for 
the Democrats either. But the biggest thing is in a classified information case, all of these issues have to be litigated prior to trial in terms of like the admissibility of the evidence and what the defense can put in and what the government's going to put in. There's a fairly extensive procedure under the Classified Information Procedure Act, which is, you know, I heard uh, Jonathan Turley, uh, I think, correctly describe it as glacially paced. Um, I I had a SEPA uh, issue in the Blind Shake case. It took us 18 months to litigate it. It wasn't anywhere near as complex as what we're talking about here. Uh, it took 18 months to litigate it, and I think ultimately I read a nine-line stipulation to the jury at the trial, but it took a year and a half to get there. Very and hard. And this is, and we, 18 months, uh, if my math is correct, uh, takes us past the election, doesn't it? Yeah, and that would be, you know, I would say it would be very hard, Michael, to get this case to trial prior to the election, even if it were the only thing that Trump had going on. But as we know, of course, it's, it's not. He's going to have, you know, the end of this month, he's in federal court trying to get the Manhattan indictment moved to federal court, which I think he's going to lose. In August, he's probably going to be indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, on the 2020 stuff. October 3rd, he starts trial uh, in New York uh, for the attorney general, the New York attorney general's civil fraud case that she brought against him. In December, he's back in court in Manhattan for pretrial hearings. That case is scheduled for trial March 25th, which is like two weeks after Super Tuesday, I think. And so that's all that's all there already. And now we have to fit in, you know, a complex federal trial. All right. And then plus there is the Washington, D.C. grand jury, which uh, I was reading today about uh, could be far more serious than this trial, uh, particularly with the idea of uh, a seditious conspiracy. In other words, if you're going to put a, a, a Stuart Rhodes away for 18 years, and he says he was only doing what he did because he felt that President Trump told him to. Uh, yeah, that's... except, the, except the, Justice, the Justice Department didn't accept that argument, and in fact... Uh, Trump was not even named as an unindicted co-conspirator in any of those cases. So if they were suddenly to pivot and say that, you know, it looks like Trump is actionably responsible for the violence after all, that would be a profound change for the Justice Department. It would create a lot of problems for them in hundreds of cases that have already been litigated. Okay. In terms of this idea of a pardon, a final outcome, uh if the election is won by Joe Biden, uh, don't you think it's it's extremely likely that he would follow his victory as long as the victory is acknowledged this time um, by issuing a, a fairly sweeping pardon for, for President Trump? He doesn't want to begin his second term with the whole world focused on Trump trials. Yeah, I just don't think, Michael, that he's in charge as far as that's concerned. I think they do a lot of what they do because the progressive base demands it. I mean, I think if Joe Biden had unfettered discretion and sense, he would pardon Trump now and he would he would look magnanimous. He probably win the election going away. Uh, people would have a very different uh, look at him in terms of his statesmanship. But I think he's captive of the progressive left. 
And frankly, the reason that, you know, Alvin Bragg is indicting Trump and, and Letitia James sued him and uh, Fannie Willis in Fulton County is about to indict him, these are elected progressive Democrats who are doing what the base expects them to do. I, I just don't think Biden has the, has the liberty to do the sensible thing. And uh, uh, again, uh, I think you're certainly right between now and the election because it would be obvious that if President Trump was uh, somehow pardoned before the election, he would trumpet that as a personal victory. You see how innocent I am. You see how uh, uh, what a witch hunt this was. Is and now they're they've apologized to me. They've uh, made it all better. And uh, now let's go ahead and concentrate on going after the Biden crime family. Uh, what, what about that? If, if President Trump does win, uh, would he pardon himself? Uh, would he uh, maybe do uh, some kind of joint thing about stopping prosecution on both sides? Uh, because don't you think the American people have had kind of enough of it? Yeah, well, he he wouldn't have to pardon himself, right? It, it, once he if he won the election, he'd be in charge of the justice Justice Department, so they just drop the case. Um, and I think Michael, the problem is that it's it's June of 2023, and there's so much between here and there that's going to happen, and so many positions that people are going to take that are going to going to affect the commitments they'll be in a position to make around the time of the election and afterwards, I, I, I just don't I just don't see it. I mean, I, I, I think the sensible thing here would be for the country and for all concerned would be for President Trump to apologize um, for Joe Biden to then pardon him because we all know Biden is not going to be prosecuted for his own classified information issues and that we try to just move forward from there with a dual commitment both to enforce the law going forward and to try to have some elections where the, the Justice Department and the FBI are not determining the outcome. That would be like the best thing for the country. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me like the best thing for the country is on the horizon. Uh, do you um, have you noted any of the candidates for president on the Republican side in just uh, the seconds left to us who you think has been handling this well? Unhappy, you know. I know people are uh, annoyed that this DeSantis isn't more full-throated, but I also think he's conscious of the fact that this is very raw right now. And over time, I think people will be able to discuss it more sensibly. I, I, I agree with most of what Christie has said about this. I think Nikki Haley's been kind of here and there. She's um, been, the no, she's been all over, program. here and there, up, down. And uh, she's also going to be on our show, I'm pleased to say, coming up next week. Uh, Andrew McCarthy, always informative. Uh, his most recent columns posted on our website at michaelmedved.com and This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.